Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T.org. We've got a fantastic show lined up for you this evening. We're going to speak with a pair of high school students about last week's school walkouts over COVID safety concerns. We'll also hear from a Bronx school parent activist who is running for state assembly to shake up business as usual on education policy in Albany. And we'll speak with Sunset Park Socialist Assembly member Marcella Matanius about her first year in office after defeating a 26-year incumbent and her priorities for the year ahead. But first, we're going to get an update from Brooklyn Housing Court. Eviction proceedings resumed today after Governor Kathy Hochul lifted a nearly two-year-long statewide eviction moratorium. More than 200 thousand households in New York state are at risk of being evicted. Tenant activists were on hand to offer a hand to embattled tenants and the Indies Amba Gagarian was also there. Amba, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks. Great to be here. Um, You bet. So can you set the scene for us as far as what was uh, going on at Brooklyn Housing Court today? Yeah, absolutely. So there's been a lot of action in the streets. Um, uh, put on by different tenant groups and and different housing activists over the past couple of weeks leading up to the expiration of the eviction moratorium. There wasn't a huge action there at the housing court today, but what there was was tenants who are facing eviction, um, official eviction, um, you know, now for, for most of them, it's the first time since the pandemic are having to head into housing court and and have their eviction cases heard. So there were people lining up outside, going in, and there were um, people with Brooklyn eviction defense um, and anti sort of eviction eviction aid organization um, that were tabling there and were providing resources to the people that were going into housing court um, since it reopened. So they were telling them uh, how to basically defend themselves against an eviction. Um, there were also some organizers doing a press conference from Crown Heights Tenants Union, which is another big organization, uh, well, well resourced, I should say, organization in the city who knows a lot about tenants' rights and what's up with that. Great. And uh, you have some uh, some uh, audio from out there today. I understand you were able to uh, uh, talk to at least one tenant and uh, hear a little bit more from them. Yeah, and let's go to that audio in a second, because it's actually a tenant speaking about the the value of organizing. But I'll tell you first a bit about um, what I heard from some of the tenants who are walking in who, you know, are getting these eviction notices. Um, we have, I heard from at least three elderly people who were illegally locked out of their apartments by their landlords. Now that is not a legal part of an eviction. A landlord cannot change the lock on your apartment, and that is not how you should be evicted. You should receive a court issued official notice that is delivered by court workers or marshals and then you have two weeks to leave the apartment now it's very important that people facing eviction know that it must be a court issued letter not harassment by the landlord not them changing your locks and then if you are officially issued an eviction notice you have the right to free legal counsel now that's a free lawyer in new york which you can access by calling 311 so i saw people who were locked out of legally locked out um someone who has major violations in the public areas of the apartment since 2017 that the landlord hasn't um done anything to fix which means they might not have to pay rent since then someone whose landlord ripped out their toilet and their sink 
Um, the list goes on. Right. But we can go now to that clip of one of the tenant organizers talking about the value of organizing. Um, this was an, an older woman who lives in Prospect Lefferts Garden. This is my building. We, we, never had a, uh, we never had a tenant union until, you know, this pandemic. Okay. So now we have, a, I mean, not all the tenants are in, but the majority of tenants are in the union, you know? Okay, it felt great because, you know, um, get to know your neighbors and what they're going through. You know, some of them have repairs that haven't been taken care of, you know, in a long time. So, and now with the pandemic, and some of them are behind on rent. Everybody, you know, got together and we decided to form the tenant union to see, you know, what we could get done. And do you feel, do you feel less scared um, bringing up issues with your landlord now that you have a tenant union in your building? No, not scared because, you know, we are like in a group, we are together, you know, so... It's better when, you know, you have backup. Right. So that was a woman who was never organized as a tenant. Jobs and we can't afford to pay, right? Sorry, you know, not everyone has back savings. They all organized together and they became a part of Crown Heights Tenants Union um, and started a tenant association in their building. And she was just talking about how much more empowered she feels and the import of being a part of a tenants association. So, you know, she. No doubt there's power and unity and. You need collective action for collective problems. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, we're going to have to wrap up here in a minute. Uh, but for any of our listeners who may be at risk of eviction or know someone who is at risk or who just want to uh, get involved and provide support, uh, where can they find I- information about groups that are doing the work? Right. So there's a few groups. Um uh, the the first group I mentioned is Brooklyn Eviction Defense, and they uh, do some tenant organizing because they see that as a sort of um, anticipatory version of, of uh, uh, defending an eviction, but they really help if you are facing eviction. So the best number to call if you are facing eviction is Brooklyn Eviction Defense, and that number is 917-982-2262. That's 917-982-2265. You can also go online to brooklynevictiondefense.org. Now, if you're more interested in organizing, you should contact Crown Heights Tenant Union. They can help you get organized starting in your building. And that website is crownheightstenantunion.org. CrownHeightsTenantUnion.org, pretty easy. Now, Met Council on Housing, the Metropolitan Council on Housing, is an older conglomerate that's been protecting tenants in the city for a while. They also have a hotline and provide some of the same services of the two organizations I just mentioned. Um, And that hotline is 212-979-0611. Again, it's 212-979-0611. 979-0611, especially if you're outside of Brooklyn, I would go for that number rather than the first one. And that website is metcouncilonhousing.org. Again, metcouncilonhousing.org. And I know that's a lot of information, folks, but that's Brooklyn Eviction Defense, Crown Heights Tenant Union, and the Metropolitan Council on Housing. Okay. Well, Amba Gagarin of the Independent, thank you so much for this report today. Thank you. All right. So 
um, we're going to just keep on going here. There's uh, tenants are not the only ones who are facing a pandemic-induced crisis made worse by bad public policy. More than 1 million New York City public school students, teachers, and staffers returned to class on January 3rd after the holidays amid a surge in COVID-19 cases caused by the Omicron variant. Teachers, staff, and students became infected in droves, and, and many of them had to quarantine at home, making it impossible in many schools for any real learning to t- take place or certainly very diminished uh, learning to take place. And um, so joining us today, oh, well, actually, hold on a sec. Um, so uh, Mayor Eric Adams uh, insisted the schools had to remain open and, and that the only um, option for learning was uh, in-class learning, no remote option. Uh, he appeared on CBS's Face the Nation on January 9th and and, uh, and and shared his thoughts on how he was handling uh, the school reopening. A formidable and moving target. And we have to pivot and shift based on that. And our policies have been rooted in, I need my children in school. And we have been doing an amazing job because of one thing, coordination and communication with our UFT and other agencies involved. And I believe we're doing the right thing for our children, having them in the safest place, and that is in the school building. Well, ignoring the mayor's assurances, thousands of students protested the health and safety conditions in their schools two days later on January 11th, last Tuesday, by walking out of their classes uh, in a number of uh, schools across the city. Joining us now to talk more about this are two students, uh, Kiara and Pramish, from Mott Hall 5, a grade 6 to 12 public school in the Bronx, uh, where I believe there was a student walkout last Tuesday. Uh, Kiara and Pramish, welcome to the show. Hi, it's so Hello. lovely to be here. Hi, hi, Kiara, and hi, Pramish. Uh, Kiara, we're going to uh, let's start with you. You're the student council president at Mott Hall Five High School. Uh, can you describe the COVID pro- protocols at your school, and what were the conditions there that uh, led students to become so concerned about what was going on? Uh, of course. Um, The COVID protocols have changed um, since the beginning of the school year, but most of it has stayed the same. Socially socially distanced classrooms and hallways, six six to three feet, depending on where you are and depending on the space that you're in. Um, Mask on at all times, unless you're in a um, mask break zone, which is just a zone for kids to take a break and like have their mask off. But that's only if you're vaccinated. And um, most classrooms have air purifiers that should be on at all times and a hand sanitizer and just cleaning station in most rooms. Um, the only thing that really has changed is the spacing of desks in classrooms. Um, before they were in single rows, but now um, they're in groups uh, as, as if it was before the pandemic. So uh, why, why were you all concerned? What, was, what in your eyes was going wrong here? My main concern uh, I, started, I started to really see was at before break when Omicron really hit hard and a lot of kids started to get COVID and a lot of kids were starting to, uh, to call in sick and it was well, like, 
And even like when we came back, it was about 50% of the kids who would usually attend school were there were only 50% of us. And what about your teachers? Were a lot of them calling in sick as well? Uh, yes, a lot of teachers did call in sick. Uh, the first week we got back from winter break, um, we had, I think, about 40% of teachers call in sick and we needed substitutes for those classes. Right. And, and, and how did that make the whole classroom experience go to have both have so many teachers um, out sick and uh, replacement teachers coming to your classes or were you all like uh, sent to the auditorium to just uh, hang out there or how did, how did your school even navigate having that many teachers out? We had enough substitute teachers and we students were able to, to stay in their classrooms or combine classrooms depending on how, how many kids attended the given class period um but oh it was not like a really like a, a real classroom it was because so many people were called in sick not, we really didn't learn anything and it was it was used more of like free time whether to catch up on work or whatever you needed to do and scroll your phone yeah <laughs> and like and like even if you were so remote and because you tested positive, which is re- the only way that you would be um, excused, have an excused absence is if you got tested positive, like you would have your work posted online. But uh, even then, it's, it still wasn't the same. We weren't learning as much as we would have if the whole class was there. Right, because... The, the students that were out sick were getting the assignments online, but they weren't participating in the in the live classroom experience in any way, correct? Exactly. Right. And, and, and so y'all wanted uh, a, a, a remote option here so that um, you'd have a better chance at, at, at learning, basically. Yeah, exactly. We wanted a remote learning option, not just for kids who tested positive, but also for kids and also parents who wanted to keep their kids at home uh, for because either the fear or because they have COVID and at a better system that's set up than what we have today and now, because right now it's just them po- being posted, getting work posted with, on whatever website uh, the teacher's using, but they're missing out on a lot of in-class instruction and you can't really get a hold of the teacher um, because obviously they have to pay attention to the, to the people inside the classroom. Um, So, um, and we do, and I do understand that having like a classroom inside, um, inside the school and having a Zoom call isn't really functional, but there needs to be a better system set up than the one that is, than that we have now. Right. And, and uh, Pramish, I want to turn to you here for a, a moment. Can um, the, the mayor uh, uh, wasn't really uh, listening to these concerns, it appears. Uh, can you describe uh, for us um, the, the walkouts? And, and, and if you had a walkout at uh, Mott Hall 5 High School, uh, how that went down and um, how many students participated and what y'all were demanding? 
Well, in our school, most students, including myself, didn't feel safe um, at school because of the amount of people that were absent. We felt that we weren't getting like a proper education because of the amount of kids that were absent and that everything was just a bit chaotic and we weren't really sure what was going on. So as a part of student council, me and my fellow council members, we got together and decided that it would be best to participate in this statewide um, rally that was going on, a uh, walkout on, t- on that Tuesday that happened. So f- leading up to the walkout, I was talking to a bunch of students, lots of groups of students, in- giving them information on what's happening and hearing their opinions on how they felt because of what was going on and with, especially with Omicron and everything else and about what Mayor Eric Adams was talking about when it came to schools and not wanting to close them. I spread the word and I think social media played a really key part in this because without having social media to spread the word, it would have been very hard to have everybody know what was going on. Sure. Have the coordination that we had. And so how many, uh, how many students uh, walked out at your school? I understand there's about 700 students at uh, Mott Hall yeah, 5. About like 660 students in our school. Uh, half of that is middle school. The other half is about high school. Um, there are about 10 to 20 students, mostly in the uh, 10th and 11th grade that participated. Okay. Um, due to the fact that we're mostly, we weren't really sure what was going on because we weren't sure that if there were going to be consequences. Some students were feared that they might get suspended or expelled for walking out. Mm. And most of us weren't afraid of the consequences that would happen if we did walk out. So uh, were you one of the students who walked out? I was. Uh, me and some of my peers walked out. Uh, we took chalk and we drew in front of the school uh, that we uh, wanted school safety and what we were fighting for, for an online learning option for students who have COVID and that are at home and want to feel safe. And for people who are at, who are currently in school that would like to do remote learning because it's safer for them. Right. And how did it feel to uh, walk out of those school doors into the fresh air and, and, and challenge the, um, the, the situation that it felt was going on in your school? I felt empowering because that knowing that we were trying our best as a community to put our voice together because we want to be heard. Doing our best to make our voice heard so that the mayor knows that we're, like, that we're trying, that this is something that we want. And coming together, it, I feel like this helps bond our community, me and my peers, because we're coming together for an issue that we all feel very strongly on. Right. Well, I, I got to say, it's impressive. Uh, a, a very long time ago when I was in high school, I, I certainly wouldn't have expected anybody on our uh, student council to organize something like this. Uh, um, so uh, it's great what you did. Uh, did uh did there turn out to be uh, disciplinary consequences? Uh, were any of y'all punished for doing this? Uh, no, we were not punished for doing it. As we were leaving the school during the walkout, we the principal was there, actually. Uh, he made us sign our names on this book. Okay. And we came back and signed our names and did not leave the school premises during that period. We, there would be no disciplinary actions. I see.
and um, can you tell us a little bit more about the uh, communication and coordination with other schools uh, in the city? And you said this was a statewide effort. Uh, were you um, in touch with students at other schools? Um, I was, I had received it. I had learned about it through social media from students at Brooklyn Tech. I think there was a big walkout there. That was, I think I heard about it on the news. Yes. Um, and from there, I brought it up to our student council and us as a team decided what we should do and if we should support this action for our school through various things like social media or speaking about it to our peers, spreading the word and gaining awareness. Right. Yeah, no, because uh, Brooklyn Tech is you know, very high profile high school. And um, yeah, it's great. You guys up in the Bronx, uh, you, you, um, you know, also made your uh, decision to move forward. Um, uh, Kiara, pivoting back to you, um, ha- have things uh, changed uh, yet in your school? Is there anything uh, being done differently since uh, last week's walkouts? No, nothing uh, has been communicated for, to me, and I would be one of the first students to know because I am the student body president, and I also work in my school's office. Um, but there has been no changes in the code protocols or the rules when coming to to um, coming to kids who have come in contact with someone who's COVID positive, like having a testing kit. We Students still do not have um, avail- free availability to at-home test kits like teachers do who get new test kits every week, um, but students would have to wait um, to be exposed in school. So even if they get exposed outside of school, they would not get a testing kit from the school, which is one of my main concerns because now kids don't have a way to be able to get tested freely without having to worry about uh, time management. Right. And uh, we, we have to go here in a sec, but uh, uh, Pramisha, are, are there ongoing conversations still among uh, students uh, at your school or between uh, students at other schools about taking more action uh, if necessary to try to nudge the people in control to do more? I haven't heard anything else about what was happening about taking further action, but I think that as a community, based on what I'm hearing, that our community would probably be willing to taking more action because I think this is something that we all believe very strongly in and would like to see change happen. Okay, well, we'll leave it there Uh, for now. We'll continue to follow this story. Uh, Kiara and and Pramish from Mott Hall 5 School in in the Bronx, Uh, thank you so much for joining us this evening on 99.5 FM. Thank you for having us. You bet. All right. So uh, our next guest in a moment is a Bronx public school parent and former AOC staffer who is running for state assembly as a champion of replacing mayoral control of schools with a more uh, democratic system of municipal and community uh, control of schools. His opponent, a nine-term incumbent, happens to be the chair of the assembly's education committee. We'll talk more about this showdown in the Bronx after this short break. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? 
I learned that Washington never told a lie. I learned that soldiers seldom die. I learned that everybody's free. That's what the teacher said to me. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that policemen are my friends. I learned that justice never ends. I learned that murderers die for the crimes, even if we make a mistake sometime. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? government must be strong. It's always right and never wrong. Our leaders are the finest men and we elect them again and again. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. What did you learn in school? That was What Did You Learn in School Today by Pete Seeger. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. Before we go to our next guest, we want, I want to urge you to give to WBEI and help keep this station on the air. Uh, we are in the middle of a fund appeal to be able to pay the rent for our uh, transmitter and antenna at four times square. It costs $17,000 a month to keep that transmitter and antenna on, on the top of four times square, a skyscraper right in the middle of Midtown. Uh, that is beaming this signal all across the five boroughs of New York City and well beyond into New Jersey, the Hudson Valley, Long Island, uh, on over to parts of Connecticut and even into a little bit of Pennsylvania. Uh, we have this 50,000-watt uh, transmitter. We have the antenna. But it keep, it takes money to keep that signal beaming, to keep not only the independent news hour, but all the other great shows that are on WBAI on the air and uh so you can call 212-209-2950 again 212-209-2950 or you can go online to give number two wbai.org and you can sign up to become a wbai buddy uh for as little as ten dollars a month and be eligible for all sorts of awesome benefits Again, that phone number, 212-209-2950, or online, give number two, WBAI.org. Uh, and, um, you know, we're, we're in mid-January, and, you know, we all had our New Year's resolutions that we made uh, uh, to do uh, one thing or another uh, in our life that we wanted to do better or, or uh, do for others. And uh, I'm happy to say that I kept one of my uh, New Year's resolutions resolutions today i became a wbai buddy and, and uh you can do it for as little as ten dollars a month and you, you really help uh stabilize this station so uh you know join me in becoming a wbai buddy you know it, it, we love doing this show every week on um for the independent news hour and, and like all the programmers here at wbai you know we put a tremendous amount of work into lining up the guests uh, interviewing the guests in advance to ask the best possible questions and prepare all the scripts and the music. And we love doing that, but, and, and, um, and it's also great to be a WBAI buddy as well, but we need your help to keep this signal 
going from the top of four times squared. Like I said, it costs $17,000 a month to do that. Uh, we're uh, on track to raise $100,000 in this fund appeal by the end of the month, which will provide uh, some real stability in terms of uh, uh, not only uh, we've not only covered uh, money we owed at the end of last year, but now we can pay ahead on this antenna and, and keep WBI financially solvent in broadcasting. And uh, again, 212-209-2950 or give number two, WBAI.org. Make a one-time contribution, become a WBAI buddy, whatever you can do, it all helps. Wherever you are, if you're here in the city or uh, over in New Jersey or up in Westchester or Rockland County or out in Long Island, we're all a part of this community of WBAI, of the listeners, the programmers, all the people who generously support this, it's community radio. There's no corporate advertising. There's no, uh, you know, big uh, corporate underwriters. Uh, it's we, the people, it, it's our radio station, 212-209-2950 or give number to WBAI.org. I'll uh, give that number again at the end of the show, but please, if you can give today, it's, so important to keep this kind of community people's radio on the air. Alrighty. In our last segment, uh, we heard from two public school students about last week's school walkouts. And in a moment, we're going to hear from Jonathan Soto. He's a public school parent activist and former aide to Cong Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And he is now running for a state assembly seat in East Bronx as a champion of ending mayoral control of New York city schools which can only be done by the state legislature in Albany. His opponent in District 82, Michael Benedetto, uh, happens to be the chair of the Assembly's Education Committee. Jonathan, welcome to 99.5 FM. Thank you so much, John. And last year I became a WBAI buddy, and I encourage everyone to do the same. We're fighting for community control, but also supporting community radio. So I'm very uh, thankful for the opportunity to be here with you. Awesome. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for urging others as well. Uh, so uh, can you tell us more about why you have put public education and ending mayoral control of New York City's public schools at the center of your campaign? And also your reaction uh, to the news today uh, that Governor Kathy Hochul uh, uh, plans to back uh, extending mayoral control in New York City for another four years, uh, basically for the the entirety of uh, Eric Adams' uh, first uh, term as mayor. If you see the people making decisions around our education, none of the people, whether it's the governor who today advocated for a four-year extension or the mayor um, who doesn't have public school children in the system or Benedetto um, who doesn't have public school children in the system, you know, we have representative politics that no longer work for us. And if you've heard from Permisha and Kiara uh, from Mott Hall 5 here in the Bronx, uh, outlined the lack of control, the lack of determination or self-determination students are feeling as a public school parent. Uh, my daughter contracted COVID last week uh, and my partner, wife, is immunocompromised. And when putting the dots together, I saw, wow, mayoral control of schools is a form of mayoral tyranny. Uh, where the mayor uh, shoved and threw kids 
into the public school system um, in the beginning of this year. And I believe he did it in order to justify the business community from doing the same to their workers. And it's very upsetting to see that people forgot that prior to mayor control implemented and bought by Mayor Bloomberg in 2002, public school parents could exercise self-determination and exercise political pressure on the system. We saw our neighbors who were undocumented had the opportunity to engage civically and also run for school elections. We saw examples of community control in Brooklyn in the 60s, led by amazing pedagogy and communities that will serve determining. And that was all taking away. The argument, which is based on fear mongering, is that lots of corruption in the system. There was decentralized process. So let's give this billionaire, Bloomberg, the power to take our schools away from us. And I know that mayor control is going to get reauthorized this year. There's 100% sure it's going to get reauthorized. But the reason why I'm running is to make sure that authorization becomes shorter every single time until we finally eliminate mayoral control. If the Democrats saw what happened in Virginia in the recent statewide elections, we saw a public parent constituency revolutionize and the Republicans, as they do because they have better messaging and branding than the Democrats, they flip the state. My argument is that that very same energy exists in the New York City public school system. But because we have an anti-democratic, we have a tyrannical system that doesn't allow us to express political power, then that political power gets stagnated and can't express itself. Now, And when you say we, uh, we have a similar energy here, you, you're saying, saying that, but that that energy is coming from a more pro- progressive direction than Virginia is, correct? Abs- absolutely. I think that the public school parents here and teachers have seen that we don't have the ability to self-determine. So when we see organizing with public school parents and teachers and community members locally, there's huge potential. I I think radical potential to be able to create a system, which I'm advocating for municipal and community control, where we have the city council, public advocate, controller, exercise more authority and oversight over the administration of the school system, I will grant that centralizing operations through the mayor's office um, and through the DOE makes sense. We need some efficiency and efficiency is good. However, there is total lack of oversight. We have a $38 billion education budget in the DOE. It's larger than several states and six times that of the NYPD, 6.2. And we don't see the results because of mayoral control. The mayor siphons the money away to contractors and donors that have such scale when it comes to a toilet paper contract or a contract for lockers or a education curriculum that does not represent the needs of the community and has become a way for mayoral donors to siphon money away from parents, schools and community members. And that's what we're fighting to end mayoral control as we know it. It's going to get reauthorized. However, my goal is that once we get into Albany, we'll be able to chip away at it so that within the next five years, we could end it once and for all. And you're running uh, as a socialist uh, um, against your incumbent opponent, 
how how does your identity as a socialist inform your position on on this issue and other issues that you're running on? Sure. So I I, I call myself a liberationist socialist. Um, you know, faith is very important to me, uh-huh. and. I think for me, when you look at the teachings of, of Jesus, for example, uh, uh, the, the preferential option for the poor, uh, the undoing of systems and abolishing the systems that harm and an investment towards healing, a redistribution of, of wealth to those that are directly impacted. That's how I identify my practice as a socialist, that people who are directly impacted and whose lived experiences are the ones that should be determining what the system looks like. It's very paternalistic and it's very, I would say, authoritarian uh, to have people and politicians determine the outcomes of schools. Our political system is based on co-equal representation of three branches. However, we've seen today with the governor's statement and with the mayor's um, disposition that the executive branch wants too much power. We've had the executive branch expand its power over the legislature, which is supposed to be the voice of the people. So that's why I think it's critically important as a socialist uh, to understand that the path towards eliminating these injustices is start bringing some more balance, some more power to the legislature and taking it away from the executive. Because I think we're approaching a system um, that lends itself, especially as we saw in this country, uh, Mm -hmm. where the executive branch... um, just a couple of years ago uh, with Trump became uh, somewhat fascist. And I am very concerned about the massive expansion of military power, of executive power, and less and less control that directly impacted people have within their domain, as we feel public school parents, teachers, and students feel as it relates to public school. It's all interconnected. And I believe that my perspective um, as a, I'll say, liberationist socialist whose faith is informed by the teachings of Jesus is that we need to abolish the systems that harm us and take control away from us, which is, in this case, as a public school parent, um, the system of mayoral control, and we need to invest massively in our healing. And healing for us is moving away from an achievement-based educational system of standardized testing, of exclusion, of gifted and talented, that separates resources for the few at the expense of the many and break that and have universalist programs, homework helpers for all, tutoring for all, uh, a focus on mental health and wellness and having students and teachers self-determine their own pedagogy as opposed to mayoral donors um, that have been doing it for the past 20 years. Right. And can you talk a little bit about your work uh, as sort of the the point person for the Homework Helpers Program that was initiated out of the office of uh, Congresswoman uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez. And also, what was it like uh, working for her? What did you learn from that experience that you might carry up to Albany? So incredibly grateful to the Congresswoman for the opportunity um, to work with her network and her volunteers. I'm a public school parent. My daughter goes to the fifth grade here in the East Bronx. And once the pandemic hit, we felt that sense of chaos, that felt sense of lack of control. And we made a call and the Congresswoman agreed and said, hey, let's call out to our volunteers, see who would be willing to serve um, our students and provide what we did one-on-one homework help. Um, We did it virtually and we had a massive response, um, over 11,000 people who actually signed up. And we were able to serve 500 students in the last year, provide one-on-one homework help within the district 
And parents come to us and say, wow, having that one-in-one engagement, even if it was virtually, was so critically important. It's ironic because we hear the mayor saying, oh, it's appropriate to have a remote option that's a one to 400 student model. That is entirely opposite of what we did. One-on-one engagement was possible because we were creative And that's what I think the Congresswoman politics represented. It's something that I learned from her is that we could have, we can move away from a reactionary politics of fear mongering and move towards a creative politics of affirming and creating new systems that we can engage with one another. It was a distributive uh, system. We are excited to continue advocating for it. We actually have partnered with many city council members through the Congresswoman's Courage to Change Pact, um, who had endorsed several city council members. And we have Homework Helpers Program happening in Brooklyn, in Bronx, with different city council members. And these are the types of programs that we could have, but we have mayoral control, where the mayor does not want a real remote option and wants to hoard all of the decision-making power and not allow for that expression. So the Congresswoman showed that was possible, and I'm excited um, to highlight the contradictions in our system through my campaign. My campaign is going to serve as a political education system um, and program to let parents know, teachers know, communities know that there is another world possible outside of mayoral control. It's going to get reauthorized this year. However, the goal is that it'll end by the next reauthorization, and maybe we'll have a new mayor and governor who will be out of our way by next time. Okay, well, we'll leave it there for now, but Jonathan Soto, uh, running for a state assembly seat in District 82 in East Bronx, a parent school activist as well. Thank you so much for joining us on WBAI Radio this evening. And thank you to your audience. These are the communities of Co-op City, Throgs Neck, Pelham Bay, uh, country club um, and parts of Westchester Square. Thank you so much and looking forward to connecting soon, John. Okay. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Okay. We'll uh, be back after this short break and we'll be joined by uh, State Assembly Member Marcella Matanias, who uh, just a, a couple of years ago ran an insurgent campaign as well against a 26 year incumbent and prevailed and has been one of the uh, you know, real uh, uh, dynamic new members of the state legislature in the past year. Cry Tough by Alton Ellis. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. 
In our final segment this evening, we're going to get a report from Albany from Assemblymember Marcella Matanias, who represents Sunset Park and Red Hook. She's one of a cohort of socialist, of now six socialist lawmakers who have arrived in Albany uh, starting in 2018 and more so last year in, um, in, in 2020 and 2021. And she has helped uh, shake things up uh, in Albany, uh, I'd argue for the better. And now she's ready to begin uh, her second year in the state assembly and is going to share some of her priorities with us today. Uh, assembly member Matanias, welcome to WBAI radio. Thank you so much for having me. Great. It's great to have you back on the show again. Um, so uh, before we get into uh, current events and, and, and developments in Albany, uh, looking back on your first year of service in the, in the state legislature, as someone who was a tenant organizer who won this, uh, you know, big upset in Sunset Park, uh, what did you and what did you learn about Albany in serving in the state assembly from your first year up there? Um, thank you. Um, it was a little bit difficult um, in the sense that because of COVID and because of the pandemic, we were all logging in remotely. Um, it really didn't give us an opportunity to like talk and meet. And the very intimate conversations that happen in, con in conference also were difficult to do. Um, but one of the things that I learned was, um, you know, folks may not agree with you on one issue, um, but that doesn't mean that you can kind of like put them in a box and say, you know, this person is not someone that I can work with. Um, I was pleasantly surprised on how folks... Um, how there were some issues that I can work with and talk to on folks. And so I think that was, um, that was great. And I'm really looking forward on the opportunity to really build on those conversations and really make connections with people and figure out what it, what are the things that unite us and what things um, are we aligned on so that we can move that type of legislation and also gives me a little bit of insight on, you know, why maybe they don't support something else that I do and, and figuring out how I can kind of like have conversations around that. Right. And, and do you feel like you, your socialist caucus, the four of you in the state assembly and two others in the, in the, in the state Senate, that uh, the way you all are uh, uh, aligned together, like y'all have a, a an impact or maybe even a, a larger than expected impact just by your, presence? I think that it took me a little bit of time to realize that we were having a positive impact, um, not just as a, a, a caucus and a body of the six of us, but even within like our individual chambers, I think, um, particularly in the assembly, um, talking about legislation, there's always, um, sometimes there's fights about what can get passed and what can't, and a lot of it has to be based on you know, the money that's available to fund some of these programs. And I think that for a really long time, folks were kind of used to fighting with each other um, about, you know, what they can and what they can't do. And I think that um, we're kind of helping them see that we don't have to fight with each other, that we, we can actually legislate and we can actually pass um, bills that are going to transform people's lives and that we are aligned in that way. And, and so I'm hoping that there's there's more of that. There's maybe a little bit more political courage and in, into what we can what we can do as a body. Okay, and so uh, switching into the present moment, 
uh, Governor Kathy Hochul released her first uh, state uh, executive budget today. Uh, your, your reaction to to that and uh, how much it does or does not address your priorities? Yeah, so I think the two main things um, I'm focusing on, on as well as an array of other things, is really the excluded workers fund mm-hmm. and ensuring that there's additional funding for the applications that have not been processed, and also looking at this as a long term, um, a long term program, so that people can tap into unemployment benefits. Um, I thought it was interesting that when she first uh, became governor, that she said it was important for her to get this money out. And so I was waiting um, to hear, but there was there was no mention of excluded workers. Um, specifically, she she said something about no new programs. So I took that as she's not, you know, she this is not a priority, which is very concerning. And I think that for her to release her budget um, today, the 18th, uh, you know, right after we have, you know, Martin Luther King holiday. And right after the moratorium expires was also very, um, very concerning. She mentioned um, some money for for housing, but there aren't any details. And I know that right now there's people that are hurting, there's people that are scared, and there's people that are going to be impacted. And and so for for us um, to not act and not do anything, whether it's whether the solution is to extend the moratorium or actually pass legislation that's going to help folks stay in their home and and give them more protections, I I was very I was very concerned. Yeah, let's talk more about the end of the the moratorium, the statewide eviction moratorium. Ended mi- uh, Friday midnight. It's estimated there's more than two hundred thousand households in New York State that are at risk of eviction in the middle of the winter, no less, uh, with the Omicron variant surging. Um, your thoughts about that, and, and also uh, a good cause eviction. Uh, I, I know there's people that are advocating strongly for that. We It's actually on the cover of uh, this month's Independent. We uh, delved into into that some. But your thoughts uh, on what the governor uh, did, why she did it, and, you know, whether you can pass good cause eviction this, this spring? Well, I think we need to remember that we live in a capitalist society, so there is a priority of property owners and their rights over tenants' rights. Um so I'm I'm really concerned because we do have small property owners that do uh, provide affordable housing that also need assistance and help. Um, I'm not sure what her priorities are, how um, she's going to handle this, but certainly if we're at the point where we're letting the eviction moratorium expire, um, there's a lot of people that are going to be in danger. Um, one thing we're not talking about is the fact that this is also ab- impacting tenants that live in NYCHA who already, when they apply for the program, are being put at the end, meaning um, once the funds are given out to people that applied in regular housing, any money that's left over, they're going to, you know, they're going to process the applications for NYCHA. But we know that there's no more money. Um, We know the moratorium is also geared toward homeowners and ensuring that they're not, they don't lose their homes and they're not foreclosed on for something that, you know, you know, nobody nobody caused this. This is something that that happened that we have to deal with. And I really, truly believe that the government needs to step in and provide. And so if they're allowing the moratorium to expand, there are other pieces of legislation, good cause being one of them, that we can pass 
to help people and protect them to stay from their home. Um, so the good cause bill actually allows for um, a moderate increase, right? Landlords cannot arbitrarily raise their rent, but also landlords have to give a reason as to why they're starting, why they want to evict the tenant. Um, and so those are two things that are game changers in my district in particularly, and we can talk about something hard. We do have a lot of rent-stabilized housing. We also have Section 8 housing, but we also have a lot of like small buildings and uh, two and three family homes where we've had folks living in their 10, 15, 20, 30 years and are suddenly being evicted or are getting a, a huge rent increase that they can't afford, which forces them to have to leave. And, you know, a lot of them don't understand why this is happening now. And the truth is, you know, our neighborhood is being gentrified. And, you know, once they lose that affordable housing, it's very difficult to find something else that's affordable. You're kind of forced back into the market rate. And it's only a matter of time when you fall behind on that too. And so what we're doing at a time that we had the highest numbers of homelessness now impacted with COVID, you know, what, what message is that sending? And so that's very concerning, but it's not just a good, um, the good cause bill that we have. Um, there's another piece of legislation that would actually give, um, it would be a type of rental assistance, a rental subsidy at the state level. And this would be particularly focusing on people that are immediately facing um, displacement and also helping to try and get some, our, some of our folks out of the homeless shelters as well. So there are options and there are things that we can do. But my concern is the gap in time between we actually do it and pass it and the fact that the eviction moratorium has expired. Right. Now, uh, in uh, other news, you were uh, arrested last week at a uh, Build Not Burn climate uh, rally outside of Governor Hochul's Midtown office on uh, 3rd Avenue and 40th Street uh, last Wednesday, I believe. Uh, can you talk about why you did that and what your concerns are with uh, the governor's climate policies? Sure. Um, I'm very proud that the state had passed historic climate goals with the CLCPA. Um, but unfortunately, it's been three years later and we haven't transitioned as quickly as we need to. Um, there is currently um, only 6% wind and solar, and that's just not good enough. We need to be able to to really make sure that we're moving in the right direction. And my concern is the fact that, you know, we're giving, um, we're giving uh, assistance to corporations who's, who are, you know, responsible for uh, turning a profit. Um, and so they don't really have um, people's best interests in mind. And so that's concerning as well. Um, and as we speak right now in my district, you know, we have a, um, Norwegian offshore wind company um, that's going to be building renewables. And so I think that we have the opportunity to act as government and we should be doing that. You know, we have the ability uh, to give uh, NIPA the power to expand. So just to be clear, you're, you're happy that there's um, the offshore wind uh, equipment being built in your district. Yes and no. I'm glad that we're moving in that direction, but my concern okay. is allowing a corporation to decide um, how fast or what impact we have against climate change mm -hmm. is something that concerns me because at the end of the day, they're responsible to their bottom line. They're responsible 
you right. know, to their investors. And so this is an opportunity for us to show that the government will put people over profits. Right. And we have to go in a minute. But one other thing that I think has been interesting about um, your time in office is that uh, you and your staff are not only doing a lot of constituent service, but you, as I understand it, you you then try to uh, engage the people that you're, you've helped to become politically active themselves. Can you briefly describe that? We have about 30 seconds. Sure. I think that what I've noticed is people are just disengaged with government and don't understand the way that it works because they don't feel that government is working for them. With the assistance and help that we've provided, and I can use the Excluded Workers Fund as a good example, um, you're, you're reinstating the trust that people have in government. But it's also, it's not it's not just me going into chambers and passing legislation, right? It really takes a movement um, of working class people to really change the, the landscape of, of Albany. And so that's what we need to do. And so what a great opportunity for folks that, also, that were able to receive the funding from the Excluded Workers Fund. And also those people that applied that weren't able to get the funding to kind of work together to really build this movement to influence government in the way that it needs to and actually pass these two, two additional legislation. One is the additional okay. funding that is needed and making this a long-term program. Sorry. Great. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And uh, thank you, Assemblymember Marcella Matanias, Democratic Socialist from Sunset Park, for joining us again on, the, on WBAI Radio. Thank you. You bet. All right, so we uh, we have to go now, but one more reminder, 212-209-2950. Become a WBAI buddy, 212-209-2950, or give number two, WBAI.org. Help keep us on the air. Uh, thank you to Reggie Johnson, our board operator, uh, producer, Amba Gagarian. And we'll be back same time uh, next, uh, next Tuesday, and we'll leave you with this song, Cherry Colored Funk by Cocteau Twins. <laughs>